Sunday. My name is Daniel Carter. Yes, I am still a pastor here at this church. <laughs> so as you probably not noticed from me, but you notice my daughter Ruby and Rochelle have been gone probably half the time, if not most of the time. And for that reason, we've been speaking at other different venues and building things up for, the, for what the Lord is doing down in San Diego with, Lord willing, launching Pillar Church of San Diego in the summer. So praise God. God is doing a great work down there. But it is a joy in the meantime to be here with my church family. I love each of you. So before we get started, let's go ahead and draw our attention to the left and right of me. If you have any questions during the sermon, you are encouraged to text them in. And myself and other pastors will do our best to answer them here at the end of the message. So apparently we have been going through the book of Genesis about the last month or so, which is good news for me because I love Genesis. So if you think of like the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's like the foundation of the entire Bible. Now Genesis is the foundation of the first five books, so Genesis is like the foundation of the foundation. I say that it's key and crucial if we understand and we get Genesis, then we can get and understand the whole storyline of the Bible. So we've already seen some emerging themes happen through about the first five and a half, six chapters we have covered that God creates humanity, he creates creation, he declares it good, but all of a sudden in Genesis 3 we see that Adam and Eve fall into sin, they rebel against God's rule, and from that they're alienated from God and they fall into physical and spiritual death. It does not get much better than that after that. It seems like humanity is like on a tailspin downward, and so you, you come up to this text that we're going to see in Genesis 6, and if you're reading for the first time, you're going to ask yourself, how in the world is God going to possibly salvage his good creation? The good news, though, let's go ahead and open up our text to Genesis 6. We're going to see that despite humanity's evil and corruption increasing, this will not ruin God's good purposes of salvation. Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 6? We will be covering verses 9 through 22. So last week we saw just how bad humanity has become, how corrupt and evil. And we see God's response to destroy his creation. Now, it sounds bleak at this point, but let me, let me give you some hope. Hope is coming. So with that, let's go ahead and pray, and we will dive into God's word. Father, we come to you needing your word. Jesus, as you say, we need the word of God even more than we need physical food. Would you feed us, Lord, with your word? Would you... Help us to see the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus Christ from your word. Will you call us to holiness? Will you give us the grace to carry out obedience for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. So let's start out reading verses 9 through 10. So these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God 
And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. So the previous section is just nothing but bad news, but this generation's part signifies a significant shift of hope in introducing this character named Noah. Let's go ahead and back up and let's see why the reader should have hope when we see Noah introduced. Let's back up to Genesis chapter 5, verses 28 through 29. So to give you context, Trace covered this last week in talking about the godly line coming through this genealogy. And so Lamech is Noah's father, and he makes this significant claim about Noah's life here in these verses. So when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from the painful toil of our hands. This is significant. Now remember when Adam and Eve fell into sin and God issued the curses as an effect of their sin. And one of them was found in Genesis 3.17. Let's put it up there. And Adam, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So because of sin, not only is, is man alienated from God, but God also curses the work, the ground that they are working on. That work becomes futile. So the good news is that Lamech is claiming that his son Noah could be the one that may ease the curse, if not reverse the curse. And so if you're reading closely with this whole storyline, you remember this kind of vague guy that's mentioned in Genesis 3.15. I don't think we have it up there. But it's the guy that from the seed of the woman shall come and shall crush the head of the serpent, the, the source of evil, and reverse the curse. So because of this, and you're reading just the hope that's coming in in verses 9 through 10, you start to ask yourself, is this the guy? Is this the snake crusher? Is this the one that's going to reverse the curse? And then verses 9 through 10 give nothing but validation to that hope that Noah was a righteous man. So by God's grace, Noah was in right relationship with God, and his life and character displayed that, and that he was blameless in his generation, that he was flawless compared to everyone else around him. It does not mean that he was sinless, but blameless. And then notice that he walked with God, communicating that Noah had a special intimacy with God. It's almost like bridging this language that we find in Adam before the fall, that Adam had this intimacy and was walking with God, and almost signifying that Noah is another Adam to come. Let's continue on verses 11 through 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way, on the earth. You notice in these verses, so notice at the top, God, in, in God's sight, the earth was corrupt, in verse 11, and notice how verse 12 ends. And God saw that all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So we kind of have like a corrupt sandwich here. And then we see in the middle what that's, what's filling that sandwich, that the earth was filled with violence. And so this is a a special literary device in the Bible that we, we find called an inclusio. 
that the, the, the descriptions on the top highlight what it means in the middle. And so what, what God means is that the corruption that they're seeing throughout humanity is mankind giving itself over into violence. So we think about the world that we're living in right now, how broken it is and, and how it desperately needs a Savior in Jesus to come back and redeem it. And all that is true. But can you imagine living in a world where all of humanity absolutely gave itself over into violence? And that's the corruption we're seeing in verse 12. And so we see God's response in verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So God sees this increasing corruption and sin, and based on his holy character, his response is to destroy his creation. This sounds brutal and harsh. But let's also look at this through like a, a merciful lens. That humanity has absolutely given itself over into violence. So God's response is to crush this creation and start over with a new creation and a new Adam in this guy named Noah. So let's slow down a bit and let's consider what this reveals about God's character in line through the whole Bible, and especially in terms of salvation. So this is significant of how God is revealed in this passage, especially in light of, of the other deities at this time. So, for example, you have the Israelites going into the land of Canaan and all the Canaanites and those people worshiping these other gods, and how it's described, these, these gods that they worshiped, that they were highly inconsistent and highly... See what I have on my nose. Highly inconsistent, highly unstable in their character. That means is that they would come up to offer sacrifice to these gods, never knowing if these gods were going to strike them dead or, or take the offering. So they totally unstable. And so from that, they would start doing like these crazy things of even the point of offering their own children on the altar. We see early on in the Bible, this God of the Bible is highly unlike the other gods that the other peoples were worshiping. And we see a God who is consistent in his character, that delights in right action, that delights in right belief, but is consistent to judge when people fall short of his standard. This would have been incredibly significant for the Israelites hearing this for the first time and them seeking to know God and his character. Well, what about in terms of salvation? We see starting from this passage and emerging this theme throughout that salvation always comes through judgment. And that leads us to our first point this morning. We're going to bridge this point onto our everyday lives. That salvation always comes through judgment. Spoiler alert, Noah and his family are saved through the waters of judgment. Later on, we're going to see Lot and his family are saved through God's judgment, pouring down fire and all that on, on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the, the nation of Israel is saved through God's judgment and him judging the nation of Egypt. We can go on and on and on. Salvation always comes through judgment. But in Today's world and even some attitudes that are becoming evident 
in the church. We become very easy when we, when we pair up the person of God with the action of judging. There's this attitude that God is love and he accepts me totally for, for who I am and what I want to do, that he approves that. But yet, what we see in scriptures, that does not line up with the pervading beliefs that are advancing today. So there is bad news and that there is good news here. The bad news is that God cannot change his character in being a just and fair judge. That he must uphold his character. He must judge sin. And the Bible says that we have all fallen short of God's standard. And we deserve God's judgment. But there is good news here. I know we've, we started off with some really bad news. But the good news is that God cannot change his character in being a just and fair judge. So if you weren't paying attention, I just said the same thing. So we're going to see here at the end, we're going to explain why exactly this is good news here at the end. So let's move on to verses 14 through 17, where God provides the solution of salvation to Noah and his family. Verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the, of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So more bad news. But we see God's first issue of commands to Noah. And he commands him to make this huge ark. And so modern measurements would have put this ark at around 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and about 45 feet tall. So you see this ark that's absolutely huge. And then we see in verse 17, for the first time, of how God plans to bring about judgment on humanity. That he's going to bring a flood that will destroy creation. That God will judge his creation, but is providing salvation for Noah and his family and giving them instructions to build the ark. So now let's bridge this text into how it affects our everyday lives. So notice, let's back up with me in verse 13. We see that God said to Noah. So God is speaking to Noah. He's giving these commands. He tells these commands to Noah in order to have life. And let's jump down to verse 22. Spoiler alert, we see Noah did this. He did all that, that God commanded him. We, know, we see Noah obeyed God's word. And through that, Noah and his family are saved. And so this... This upholds and starts building this pattern of God speaking, God commanding, and salvation for those people hinging on whether or not they listen to the word and believe the word or reject the word. This leads us to our second principle, that salvation always comes through the word of God. So in God's eyes and what we see in Scripture, there are two types of people in this world. Those who listen to the Word of God and those who reject the Word of God. And since Scripture claims to be the very words of God, 
And this is God speaking to us through Scripture. This is God carrying his full weight, his authority, than to disbelieve or disobey any words of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. The word of God is that significant. And we're going to, at the end here, we're going to connect these principles to the gospel, and from there we're going to form out implications that are going to affect our everyday lives. But before that, let's move on to verses 18 through 21. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds. The birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds. I just read that. Of every, I'm going to need glasses here. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and food and for them. So other than the fact that I need glasses, we're seeing in the text that, again, this flow of the text shows that God's judgment, and, he's, and there's just nothing but bad news, but here's the hinge of the good news, and it starts with that but in verse 18. So notice God's word in verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. So God is choosing to partner with Noah as a new Adam, where he is going to judge and destroy the earth, but then through saving Noah and his family and all the, the pairs of animals that they bring onto the ark, God intends to start a new creation. This is basically a do-over of Genesis 1 and 2. So God's, remember, God's original purposes for Adam in Genesis 1 and 2 is, is to be fruitful and to multiply to the ends of the earth, that the earth could be filled with the glory of God. And now God expects this to be carried out by Noah and his family. The church, notice the underlying principle here. God does not save Noah and his family just to save them. God saves Noah and his family to serve his greater purposes of seeing his glory extend to the ends of the earth. This leads us to our third principle. Salvation always serves God's greater purposes. Church, we are a so that people. And here's what I mean by that. God partners and saves Noah and his family so that he could be the new Adam so that creation could extend to the ends of the earth. God saves Abraham so that through him the nation of Israel could be formed. And so through the nation of, of, of Israel, all the nations of the world could know God. Christian, you have been saved so that. And I'm going to finish that sentence here at the end. Let's finish our text by reading verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So Noah was obedient to God's words and that through him, God's little tiny remnant of humanity and his creation is saved through God's judgment. So at the point of the story, 
Noah is living up to his words that, that, about his father that he claims about him earlier on in Genesis 5. He perhaps is the one that is prophesied about in Genesis 3 up until this point. But spoiler alert, just like Adam was tempted into sin and gave into sin, Noah is also tempted into sin and gives into sin, showing that Noah is a type of Messiah, but he is not the Messiah. So it starts this whole pattern in the Old Testament, that whenever God seems to raise someone up, whether that be Abraham or Moses or David, and you start to think, is this the Messiah? Is this the one who's going to reverse the curse? The text is always clear that these men fell into sin, just like Adam and Noah did before them. Church, the good news is that we have a Messiah, Jesus Christ, who though tempted just like all of us, tempted with sin just like Adam and Noah, did not give into that sin and was perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. Where Adam and Noah and us were disobedient, Jesus was obedient. Yet the good news from what I said earlier, is that God cannot change his character in being a just and fair judge. And he must uphold his character to judge sin. And yet Jesus took on the judgment of God so that we could be right with him, so that we could be saved from our sin. Salvation always comes through judgment. Focusing in here a little bit more, what happened on the cross is that every last drop of God's wrath was poured out on the cross. That, and if this is true, and for believing this truth, therefore our salvation can be secure. That's why it's such good news that God cannot change his character. Not only is our salvation secure, but God's whole disposition towards us, if we believe in Christ, has been radically changed. That we who are in rebellion against God, wanting to do our own thing, that God saved us when we believed in Jesus Christ. We have been reconciled to God in right relationship with God and are now declared sons and daughters of God. That our, that God's disposition towards us now in Christ is that of love, like a loving father loves a, his children. That is good news. So this is true. Follow, follow along with me. This is true. We're embracing this. Our whole motivation in obeying God now radically transforms. So here's what I mean by this. Jesus took our judgment because he did. We who are in Christ are no longer driven to obey God through a motive of fear. We no longer have to obey the word of God because we believe that the wrath of God is going to be poured out on us. We no longer have to wonder if what we're getting in this life is because of the wrath of God. I didn't say we, we don't have to fear God, but it's radically different when we are in Christ. It's a, a loving awe rather than fearing God's punishment. A second, because Jesus took our judgment our motive of God based on pride should be radically crushed. This is what I mean by that. Obeying God in order to, to get something back from him. There's sometimes is this pervading belief among Christians that 
Because I've been obedient to the word of God, God owes me something. That God owes me a good life. God owes me health. God owes me that promotion. But we're reminded every single time we take communion, we look at the symbolic broken body of Christ and the spilt blood of Christ, that Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. Rather, trusting Jesus who took our punishment to make us right with God should lead to a motive of love with obeying God. So if you're a Christian, what is your motive in coming to church? It shouldn't be out of fear because you, you, you're scared of God's punishment. It should not be out of pride because you want God to bless you. It should, because, should be because you love Jesus and want to worship him and you love his people. Christian, why do you read the Bible? Why do you pray? It should be because you love Jesus and want to spend time with him. Why do we do why do we work with excellence? It's ultimately because Jesus is our ultimate boss and we work according to him and we love and we want to honor with him in everything that we do. And why do we want those who do not know Jesus to repent and believe in the gospel? Because church, if, if Jesus is our greatest love and he is our greatest treasure, therefore we should be passionate about him being worshipped because we love Jesus. So obeying God's word because you love Jesus should be a key indicator that you are living in line with the gospel that has saved you. See, don't miss this. Any motive of obedience, less or more than that, fear or pride, reveals that you're resting in your works in, in, or in yourself to make you right with God rather than the gospel. Continuing on. Not only does salvation always come through judgment, but salvation always comes through the word of God. And Jesus in John 1 is called the word of God. That Jesus who is fully God entered into our own lives, entered into our own creation, took on human flesh and communicated and displayed to us what God is truly like. And then he makes this radical statement about himself in John 14, 6. I don't think I put that up. But Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That Jesus claims to be the only bridge through which people are reconciled into relationship with God. Not anyone else, not Buddha, not Muhammad, not any other religious teacher, but Jesus alone, salvation alone, comes through the word of God. So if you are not a believer in Christ this morning, I don't want you to be unaware that there exists a great chasm between you and God right now. That no matter what you do or how many good works you do, you can never reconcile yourself to God. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus was obedient for us. Jesus died the death that we deserve. And repenting and believing in him, we could be made right with God. And we could be forgiven of our sins. If you're an unbeliever this morning, I want to urge you, please... Make that decision to turn from your sins, to turn from your self-rule in your life and believe in the gospel. 
for, for the believers here. Remember our last principle from the text this morning. Salvation always serves God's greater purposes. So God saved Noah and his family so that he could be the new Adam and multiply to the ends of the earth. So in light of Jesus' accomplished salvation of dying on the cross, bearing and resurrecting from the dead, we, he has created a new humanity. Those who believe in him, those who have the Holy Spirit indwelled in him, he calls the church. And Jesus gives a very similar commission to how God commissioned Adam, to how God commissioned Moses, Moses Noah. Jesus also commissions us in a very similar fashion in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. You should know this verse, or maybe you should know this. This, this is the Great Commission. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is essentially... Jesus' charge to be fruitful and multiply and serve God's greater purposes. That instead of procreating and raising up godly offspring like he gave the charge to Adam and Noah in the new humanity, Jesus wants to give birth to Christians through the preaching of the word of God, through the teaching of the word of God in the context of the local church. And through that, through that, we will expand, we will multiply to the ends of the earth with this new humanity. So Christian, whether you have been saved for 20 years or two months, you are a so that people. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race. He's speaking to Christians. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Church, you have not been saved and reconciled to God as an ends to itself. But one of the main reasons you have been saved is that you can serve God's greater purposes of multiplying people, knowing him in your neighborhood, in your workplaces, and even to the ends of the earth. So if we're believing this, and we're submitting to this truth, how would your life look differently? So I want to give you a couple challenges here. So if you're a young Christian or a brand new Christian, my challenge to you is be discipled. Part of, of what it means to, to carry out Jesus' great commission is to make disciples. If you don't know how to do that, I would encourage you to be discipled by someone. Seek out an older Christian who can help you walk and grow in your faith. We talk about in, in this church that church is not like family, it is family. And so we talk about, about three different family gatherings. So Sunday morning is like the extended family gathering, the family reunion. We have all these people coming, the, the cousins, the boyfriends, all of that coming together on Sunday mornings. And then throughout the week, we have our nuclear family called the life groups. That's the, the, the father and the mother and the kids. And I would suggest to you a third type of gathering. One where we have the mother and her two daughters or the father and her son. I would really challenge you towards that third gathering where you can sit down, where you can ask those 
questions where you can be held accountable to growing in the faith. Now, if you're an older Christian, if you've been in Christ for a while, you have a pretty good handle on the Word of God, my challenge to you is to disciple someone. Don't hold back and, and let someone come up to you. Take the initiative and form those relationships and start discipling someone. And discipleship is like this really big term that we really don't know what it means. We think you have to take someone through this book or learn this curriculum. But when we believe that, it's an obstacle for many of us to ever doing that in the first place. Discipling someone literally just means helping others follow Jesus. My challenge to you is just pick someone, open up to the gospel of Mark, and read it together, talk about it, and do it together. It's as simple as that. You're helping others follow Jesus. Another part of carrying out the Great Commission and serving God's greater purposes is towards the lost. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that in light of the gospel, we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. So just as a king would send an ambassador to a foreign nation to represent that kingdom, so King Jesus has saved us and has sent us to be representatives of his kingdom to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, and to wherever God has placed us. You have been saved and called by King Jesus. Feel the gravity of that situation. Feel the gravity of the God who has called you. So I want to give you two quick applications for that. Number one, with lost and being ambassadors of Christ, that we need to repent and pray. All of us have fallen short in some standard of making Jesus know. This isn't to be condemning, but we need to agree with God how we have fallen short, and we need to pray that God would start giving us a heart for the lost, a motivation to seek them with the gospel, and opportunities that we can form relationships and witness for Christ. The good news is that God delights in answering these prayers because God is committed to building his kingdom. Number two, we need to place ourselves in avenues through which God can work. Romans 10, 14 through 15, Paul says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So the logic goes, how can anyone possibly believe the gospel if they have never heard the gospel preached to them? So if we want to know Jesus and make him known, which is our mission statement as a church, you need to place yourselves in avenues through which you can meet those people and you can share the good news of Jesus Christ. You will never see your neighbors come to Christ if you're always in your home. You will never see your coworkers come to Christ if you're always in your office. You need to place yourself in those avenues. One thing that my wife and I are doing, and we're no, in no way is the standard here, but... What I do in the afternoon is I take little Ruby and I, I take Ruby off of Rochelle for about an hour and we just kind of walk around the neighborhood. And Ruby, praise God, is already being used by God in awesome ways and she doesn't even know about it. We're just walking around with a little stroller and a pink blanket and it's like neighbor attractant of people coming together 
and you know, saying how cute she is, and then I build relationships with them. We've been able to share the gospel. We've been able to, to see these neighbors come over for dinner. It's just one example. We need to place ourselves in avenues through which God can work. And remember our calling. We are a so that people. God has saved us in order that we serve his greater purposes to spread his glory to the ends of the earth. So we're going to close this morning. How are we doing on time? But before we do, we have the opportunity of participating in and observing two of Christ's ordinances that he has established for the church, communion, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. So in both ordinances, the gospel is on display for us. In communion, we see that salvation comes through judgment. In Jesus' broken body on the cross and the spilt blood. So let's rejoice that Jesus took our punishment. And may we pray that God would empower us to live lives that are consistent with the gospel that we believe in. That our motives of obeying Jesus would be out of love and that we would actually place ourselves and make ourselves available to be a so that people. In baptism, we observe and may we rejoice in the fact that individuals are symbolically saved through the waters of judgment by being identified with the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. When we see that, may we be reminded that we are, that our old selves have been crucified with Christ, that we've been buried with him, and that our new selves are alive, that we are new creations in Christ. And my challenge to you is that in seeing that, that you would renew that calling, that you no longer live for yourself, but you live for God who has saved you. And that we would truly offer ourselves as a living and acceptable sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, giving God a blank check with our lives, him who saved us so that we could serve his greater purposes. Church, do you pray with me? Father, we are unworthy. Lord, we see your word. We do not like seeing verses and passages about judgment. Lord, it makes us feel uncomfortable, but we see the good news that salvation could only come through judgment. And Lord, we praise you, Jesus, that you have saved us. You have taken the judgment for us to make us right with God. I pray that in believing and embracing this, that our motive for obeying you would be that of love alone. God, that we would devote ourselves to the word of God, growing in the faith, and Lord, that we would offer ourselves to be a so that people. Pray that you would move in our hearts in powerful ways this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.